You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 358 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the show. As y'all recall, when Rich was flying solo last week, he started to set the stage for the next part of the battle that we're going to look at. And that's the fighting that takes place on July 2nd on the northern end of the Federal's Fishhook line of defense, when the Confederates attack Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill. As you guys will no doubt recall, part of Robert E. Lee's plan for the second day of the battle was that while Longstreet launched the main Confederate assault against the left end of the Federals' fishhook line of defense, Second Corps commander Dick Ewell was to demonstrate against the other end of the Union line and to convert, convert that demonstration into a real attack should the opportunity present itself. And so, there, on that bloody Thursday, a separate struggle was in progress, one that would grow to pose its own serious threat to the federal position at Gettysburg. Lee's orders to Yule called for him to start his demonstration as soon as Longstreet began his assault on the opposite end of the enemy line. But, of course, Longstreet's assault was delayed by by marching and countermarching, and then the troops getting into position, and so Longstreet's big attack didn't kick off until late that afternoon. And so that meant that all throughout that hot summer day, Dick Yule and his men waited and waited and then waited some more. For the men of Allegheny Johnson's and Jubal Early's divisions, positioned east of town, the wait was particularly grueling, because for many of them, there was little in the way of shade, and so the merciless July sun beat down on them hour after hour. To make matters worse for the Confederates drawn up opposite Culp's Hill, as the hours ticked by, they could hear the Yankees over across the way felling trees and constructing breastworks on the hilltop, and essentially turning Culp's Hill into a fortress. One rebel remembered hearing the enemy troops, quote, chopping away and working like beavers. And that's where we left things at the end of the last show, as Yule's Confederates continued to wait, expecting every moment to hear the sound of Longstreet's cannon booming off to the south.
As we move our discussion to this portion of the battle, we'll once again recommend you check out a map so you can better understand what we're talking about as we describe the action on this part of the battlefield. If you happen to have picked up the Gettysburg Campaign Atlas by Phil Lano, there's a good map on page 279 showing Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill and the Union and Confederate positions. We've already talked about Cemetery Hill, of course, during our discussion of the fighting on July 1st, the first day of the battle. And we also mentioned Culp's Hill, but not really in much detail. While both were strong defensive positions, Culp's Hill was especially formidable because it was the steeper of the two and its slopes were littered with boulders and covered by trees. The wooded boulder-covered slopes of Culp's Hill actually consisted of two summits, or peaks. The taller of the two towered 180 feet above the waist-deep waters of Rock Creek, which ran along the bottom of the hill's eastern slopes. Then the lower summit rose some 80 feet above the creek. A thin saddle of ground cutting east-west across Culp's Hill separated the higher and lower summits. Federal forces had occupied the hill since late on the afternoon of July 1st, when elements of Wadsworth's battered 1st Corps Division took up positions there, following their retreat after their hard fight west of town on the first day of the battle. On the evening of July 1st, Ewell had wanted his troops to seize Culp's Hill, but after Confederate patrols stumbling about in the darkness detected the presence of Wadsworth's Yankees there, Allegheny Johnson had thought better of trying to capture it that night, and so the rebels had ended up leaving that important position in Union hands. The federal position on Culp's Hill only continued to get stronger when early on the morning of July 2nd, the 9,800 men of the 12th Corps arrived on the scene. They took up a line of battle that stretched in a southerly fashion down the eastern face of the hill and all the way down to McAllister's Woods at Culp's southern base. John Geary's division held the left of the 12th Corps line with his own left, held by the 1,300 New Yorkers of George Green's brigade, connecting to the right of, and forming at right angles to, Wadsworth's 1st Corps troops on the summit. Charles Candy's brigade formed to the right rear of Green, taking up a supporting line, while Thomas Kane's small brigade formed directly to Green's right, its 700 men stretching across the saddle and along the crest of the lower summit. From there, the soldiers of Alpheus Williams' division took over, extending the 12th Corps line south, down the lower summit, across the marshy bottomlands near Spangler's Spring, and on through McAllister's Woods on the far right of the Union line. Wait, so Geary's division had brigades led by officers named Candy and Kane? Uh, yes, Colonel Charles Candy and Brigadier General Thomas Kane. Candy Kane. <laughs> yes. Okay. Anyway, um, as soon as they arrived on Culp's Hill, Geary's men began to dig in, following the lead of Wadsworth's troops, who had hastily cut down trees and threw up breastworks the night before. 
Now, stacking their muskets, the men of Geary's division rolled up their sleeves and, with shovel and axe, started to fortify their line. Trees were chopped down, and dirt and stones piled up with the fallen trunks to form breastworks. An 1823 graduate of West Point and a gifted engineer, Brigadier General George Sears Green, who at age 62 was the oldest general in the Army of the Potomac, recalled the sheer strength of his brigade's position on the hill and how his men improved upon it. Quote, Our position and front were covered with a heavy growth of timber, free from undergrowth, with large ledges projecting above the surface. These rocks and trees offered good cover for marksmen. The surface was very steep on our left, diminishing to a gentle slope on our right. As soon as we were in position, we began to entrench ourselves and throw up breastworks of covering height of logs, cordwood, stones, and earth. A soldier in Green's 60th New York explained how, quote, Culp's Hill was covered with woods, so all the materials needful were at our disposal. Right and left, the men felled trees and blocked them up into a close log fence, end quote. Green also directed that a traverse of logs, dirt, and brush be built partially down the taller summit and running back at right angles to his main line of works. Green, with admirable foresight, had this traverse thrown up to, in effect, refuse his right flank, so that even if the enemy attacked and overran the lower summit and kept coming on toward the taller one, they'd run into that other line of breastworks. All in all, by noon on July 2nd, the Federals of Geary's division had completed a formidable, some would say impregnable, line of entrenchments and breastworks on Culp's Hill. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavours, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.
All the while, as the Federals of the 12th Corps continued to dig in, Dick Yule and his Confederate soldiers continued to wait, idling away the day under the hot July sun, expecting at every moment to hear the booming of Longstreet's cannon off to the south. Finally, at about 4 p.m., there came that long, low, and familiar rumble like distant thunder. It was the noise Yule had been waiting for, the sound of Longstreet's artillery. Old Pete's assault on the southern end of the Union line had finally started. Dick Yule understood that Robert E. Lee wanted him to kick off his demonstration simultaneously with Longstreet's attack, and this Yule now proceeded to do, not by launching his infantry against the Yankees, but by bombarding them with his artillery instead. 19-year-old Major Joseph Latimer, commanding the artillery of Allegheny Johnson's division, wheeled his four batteries into position on Benner's Hill, a gentle rise of ground east of Gettysburg and northeast of Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill. Johnson's artillery was normally commanded by Lieutenant Colonel R. Snowden Andrews, but Andrews had been severely wounded at Winchester on the march up to Pennsylvania. So on July 2nd, the battalion went into action under Latimer's direction. Latimer was a talented young officer, a former student at the Virginia Military Institute. But here at Gettysburg, he drew a tough assignment. Unlimbering two dozen artillery pieces on Benner's Hill, Latimer was to blast the federal positions over on Cemetery Hill in the hopes of weakening the enemy's lines there in preparation for an assault by the Confederate infantry. What made the assignment difficult was that Benner's Hill was an inherently poor position. It was lower in elevation than Cemetery Hill and could be easily dominated by the far more numerous Union guns posted there. But Latimer had no other choice, because on the Confederate side of the lines, Benner's Hill offered the only viable artillery platform east of town. And so, running his 24 guns quickly into position, Latimer opened fire, unleashing a torrent of shot and shell toward Cemetery Hill, about nine-tenths of a mile away. One Federal soldier on Cemetery Hill remembered, quote, The shots came thick and fast, bursting, crushing, and plowing. It was, he said, quote, a mighty storm of iron hail, a most determined and terrible effort of the enemy to cripple and destroy the guns upon the hill. But the Federal response wasn't long in coming, and it was like the wrath of God. Cemetery Hill shook with the combined fire of dozens of Union guns from both 1st and 11th Corps batteries, all trained on Latimer's outnumbered pieces on that vulnerable hilltop. Benner's Hill, said one Confederate, became, quote, a hell infernal. On Cemetery Hill, Major Thomas Osborne, commanding the 11th Corps artillery, described the effect of the rebel fire on the Union guns, quote, No impression was made on the artillery beyond the loss of a very few men killed or wounded, a few horses killed, and a caisson or two blown up. The batteries were in no way crippled or demoralized. Latimer and his gunners stood nobly by their pieces for nearly two full hours, 
but the price they paid was heavy. By the time the ordeal was over, Latimer had lost 51 men and 30 battery horses. As the rebel artillerists fell, killed, or wounded, soldiers from the nearby 50th Virginia Infantry Regiment stepped in to help serve the guns. Around a quarter till six, when he was convinced his men couldn't take any more, the boy major rode off to find Allegheny Johnson and request permission to withdraw what remained of his battalion from Benner's Hill. Johnson agreed, but told Latimer to keep four pieces in position to support the rebel infantry in their upcoming attack on the Federals. Latimer rode back to Benner's Hill and ordered most of his guns to withdraw, although he stayed with the four that remained on the hilltop. A short time later, the brave 19-year-old was struck down by a shell fragment that shattered his right arm. It proved to be a mortal wound. Joseph Latimer would be evacuated to Virginia and die on August 1st. Although the Confederate artillery fire didn't have the desired effect, Ewell nevertheless thought the time had come to send in his infantry. His plan called for Allegheny Johnson to attack Culp's Hill, and once Johnson's men became fully engaged, then Jubal Early would launch an attack up the eastern slopes of Cemetery Hill. Completing Ewell's assault would be troops from Robert Rhodes' division, who would hit Cemetery Hill from the northwest, even as Early's men assaulted it from the east. By now it was 6 p.m. On the opposite end of the line, Barksdale's Mississippians were just then striking at the peach orchard. Here, Dick Ewell gave the orders for his men to attack. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Gettysburg Day 2, A Study in Maps, by John D. Imhoff. Yes, more maps. Um, Imhoff uses more than 50 maps to cover the progress of the fighting during the afternoon and evening of July 2nd. What makes it a tremendous resource is not just those maps, but also the heavily footnoted text that accompanies them. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Then we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Lar, Nicholas H., Daniel C., and Alex F. And thanks to Paul H. for his donation this past week. And then, as the curtain comes down on this episode, we'll remind you that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every show is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us again next time, when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Gettysburg. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.